Hey everybody, this is Staff Sergeant Brian Schroeder. And I'm Leanna Machino. And welcome to the OK Guard Show. Yeah. So this month we're talking about Native American Heritage Month, which is every November. Correct. Um, we went over to the museum that's right down the road off 36th and interviewed curator of the museum, Mike Gonzalez. He has a wealth of knowledge of history in the Oklahoma National Guard as a whole, especially Native American uh, history and culture, and it runs deep. And when you say us, of course, you mean Sergeant Anthony Jones. Yeah. He's the one that sat down with Mike Gonzalez. We were just there to record audio yeah. and video. But uh, Sergeant Jones also has a very broad knowledge of Oklahoma history mm -hmm. and history of the Oklahoma National Guard. So it was fun hearing the two of them kind of geek out a little yeah. bit speaking about history. Yeah, I, uh, I learned a lot for sure. It was definitely great to have Sergeant Jones on. And he's in our office full time and helps us a lot with the show. So Jonesy, thank you very much for your help. Uh, and if y'all like the episode, be sure you give him a shout out on social media. He's yeah. also our social media manager. Yep. So like us on Facebook, yep. Twitter, uh, send us a good shout out on Podbean. Let us know how we're doing. Yeah. Cool. You want to roll into it? Let's do it. All right. Hi, I'm Sergeant Anthony Jones. I'm with the Oklahoma National Guard Office of Public Affairs, and I'm here with Mike Gonzalez at the 45th Infantry Division Museum to talk about Native American Heritage Month. Mike, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing just fine. Thank you very much. So being the Oklahoma National Guard and November Native American History Month, or Heritage Month rather, there's a lot of intertwined history between the Oklahoma Guard and Native American history. And I think the museum kind of talks about that history. Where does that history begin? Oh gosh, you know, um, we begin the story of Oklahoma's military past in the year 1541 with the expedition of the Spanish Conquistador Coronado to what we now call Oklahoma. But you have to advance forward in time um, to the 1830s when the, the five tribes were forcibly relocated to Oklahoma. Uh, once they got here, um, they reestablished their towns, their cities, their, their farms, their roads, their communities. And to protect those communities, each tribe uh, con uh, constructed its own internal police force. And uh, these police, force, police forces ultimately became known as the Light Horsemen. By the 1890s, uh, the federal government uh, recognized that the uh, Light Horsemen were taking a lot of the burden off the army that had been uh, left here in Oklahoma uh, for a number of reasons. And so the, um, the, the federal government began to subsidize the Light Horsemen's operations with weapons and uniforms, now albeit these are already antiquated uh, uh, weapons and uniforms, but nonetheless, uh, the federal government began to help them out with those kinds of resources. So that's some of the early uh, association uh, with Native Americans and Oklahomans. Uh, once we get into the 20th century, the um, uh, Oklahomans, the Native Americans that live, live in Oklahoma, uh, have been some of the most patriotic, uh, staunchly patriotic members of our community. Uh, they served in disproportionate numbers uh, in the First World War. Uh, and in the Second World War, uh, the uh, uh, great numbers of Native Americans were in the uh, 
45th Infantry Division, you have to understand the division in the early days was made up of the uh, elements of the National Guards of four states, Oklahoma, Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona, very large Native American population in that region. So the 45th Division, uh, at the time of its mobilization, uh, had a, a very large segment uh, of, its, uh, of its membership being Native Americans. Okay. So you mentioned um, with World War One that there was a, a large number of Native Americans who served in the Guard. Um, here in Oklahoma, we have the proud history of the 45th Infantry Division, but the, the 45th wasn't a division yet. What, was, what did that look like for the Oklahoma Guard? Well, uh, the, the, the 45th Infantry Division was organized in 1923. And as I said, it was initially made up the elements of those four states. Um, the uh, original building here to the museum was the first division headquarters. Um, when they put the division together, they took a look, a look at the region and uh, they recognized uh, that there was a very interesting population in that region. Uh, ergo, uh, this was the thinking in their minds when they began to design the division shoulder sleeve insignia. Now, the, the original insignia was a square tilted at a 45-degree angle. Why a square? Well, it has four sides, one side for each state. The colors of the patch were designated as red and yellow from the flag of Spain to represent the very large Hispanic population in the region. And the symbol in the center of the patch was uh, there to represent the inordinately large population of Native Americans. Now, that first insignia, when seen by people today, they find it a little startling. Uh, the symbol that was uh, originally used has now, is now ubiquitously referred to as the swastika. Mm -hmm. uh, however, if you'd taken that symbol anywhere in the Southwest, 1923, and asked anybody, what's this? Without hesitation, they'd have said, oh, it's a Native American good luck symbol. Uh, it is a symbol that is recognized by all 500 tribes of North America. And generally speaking, it means something good. Prosperity, good luck, fertility, a sun wheel. It's, a, it's a, seen as a good thing. Uh, Native Americans still recognize the symbol and still use it in uh, much of their artwork. Um, 1933, however, Adolf Hitler becomes uh, Chancellor of Germany. The Nazi Party's symbol uh, replaces the original German flag and becomes the new flag of Nazi Germany. And of course, it's a red flag with a white circle and a black swastika. Well, in those days, people got their visual news by going to the motion picture theaters, and they'd see Pathé spanning the globe, movie tone news. They'd see images of men in uniform wearing swastikas, and they would learn about National Socialism. Okay. Well, they come out of the theater, Here's Billy Bob on his way home from drill, and what is he? He's a man in uniform wearing a swastika. So the there, was guard, a, there was a need for a change. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They, they decided that they had to change the uh, shoulder sleeve insignia. And what they did is they held a contest. It was open to all the enlisted ranks. Uh, the winner would receive $300. Now, this is the um, 1930s, $300 during the period of the Great Depression. A lot of that, money. That is good money. So there were a number of, uh, of entries, as you can well imagine. The uh, runner-up was uh, a red square again at a 45-degree angle 
and embroidered in the middle of this square was going to be a smoking 45 caliber revolver. That makes pretty good sense. 45th Infantry Division, 45 caliber revolver. The However, the winner was the Thunderbird. Okay. The symbol that we still wear today. The rationale behind that? Staying with the Native American logo to represent those Native Americans in the division. Again, Thunderbird is a, a mythological creature that's generally uh, known by all 500 tribes of North America. The Thunderbird is itself a, a huge bird of prey. So big it can carry a lake of water on its back and as it flies over the land, the wind blows the water off the tips of his wings and that's the rain that flows across the land. The thunder, well that's the beating of his mighty wings. And the lightning, well that's his talons, the thunderbird. So that became the division patch by 1939. Everybody's wearing it. Mm -hmm. uh, 45th Division gets mobilized uh, prior to World War II in uh, September of 1940. And by 1943, uh, finds itself embroiled in combat with the Germans in Sicily. Now, the Germans had no knowledge of Native American folklore, so they referred to the 45th Division as the Falcon Division. Okay. So... Um in World War II, I know that the 45th has a, a very large, it's 511 days in combat, a huge legacy there. What role did Native American soldiers play during that time? Well, Native American soldiers were in every regiment of the division. Um, predominantly, though, uh, early on in the 157th Infantry Regiment out of Colorado, uh, and the 157, every division has one. The 157 was the hard luck division. Uh, every time you turned around, the 157 was just getting the, its teeth knocked out. Um, by, by 1945, however, uh, because uh, the division was suffering so many casualties, the, uh, the entire division, not just the 157, had lost its regional flavor. But uh, even by the end of the war, uh, you didn't have any trouble walking through the ranks of the 45th Division and seeing Native American soldiers. Uh, so they were with us the, the entire time. The uh, 45th Division received 10 Medal of Honors. Well, in World War II, uh, the division, nine members of the mm -hmm. division received the 45th, the, the excuse me, the, uh, the Congressional Medal of Honor. Mm -hmm. Now, of those, three of them were Oklahomans. Mm -hmm. And of those, all three were Native Americans. So who were they? I know everybody knows Ernest Childers' name. Who were Ernest the others? Ernest Childers. Jack Montgomery, and Jack Treadwell. Okay. Jack Treadwell, by the way, stayed in the Army uh, after World War II. Um, when the uh, Korean War came along, he was working at the Pentagon. Uh, he asked for combat command. Well, the Army's very reticent to send its Medal of Honor recipients in combat, uh, so he was denied. Uh, by Vietnam, however, he was a full colonel, and he ordered himself to, uh, to Vietnam, where he again distinguished himself uh, in combat as a commander. Okay, so, so Treadwell, he ordered himself into a combat position. Yes, he ordered himself uh, into, into combat in Vietnam, where he again distinguished himself. Today, uh, Jack Treadwell is Oklahoma's most highly uh, decorated soldier, even to this day. Do you know um, each of those three, kind of their path to service, like where they started, or kind of how they entered the service? Well, um, Jack... Montgomery had actually joined as an enlisted man um, 
before the mobilization. Uh, so did uh, uh, Jack, um, uh, so did Ernest Childers. Matter of fact, we have a, a photograph of Ernest Childers. Uh, he was in the guards uh, early enough that his initial shoulder sleeve insignia was that yellow swastika on a red uh, square. Um, and these guys were with the division at mobilization. They received, uh, Ernest Childers received a, 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 a combat promotion uh, to officer. Uh, Jack Montgomery went through the program, uh, Title X program, got a promotion uh, to, to an officer. And um, Jack Treadwell, I believe, was an officer already when he was assigned to the division. Okay. And I know a lot of, uh, in pop culture, everybody thinks about, when they think about Native Americans in the military, they go to code talkers, wind talkers, that era. Mm. Um, was that more prominent in World War I, World War II? Is that something that we well, saw it, within the Oklahoma In World War I is when that started. Um, and you have to understand that in World War I, radios were the size of small cars. Um, so you didn't, they weren't really good tactical devices. Uh, there was a lot of by-wire telephone communications. So the World War I battlefield, in addition to working with lunar landscape, was just crisscross with wire all over the place. You couldn't distinguish British and American or German wire from anybody else's. It was everywhere. It got to be so bad that you could literally take a field phone, take the two wires, stick them into the dirt, and listen to radio communication, telephone communications. Uh, and the Germans were experts at breaking our codes. Tactical battlefield codes are not the type of code where you can send a message to a guy on the front line trace and expect him to have half an hour to sit down and decode your message. Mm -hmm. It's got to be done quickly. And the Germans were really good at, at breaking our codes. So somebody lost to history came up with the brilliant idea that, hey, uh, Bob over there is a Cherokee Indian Cherokee. And Larry is a Cherokee Indian and he speaks Cherokee. Let's put them on either end of the phone, and we don't need a code. Okay. So that's what they did. Now, these guys got together, and they figured out the, the so-called code. Mm -hmm. In that, um, in the Native American language, there was no word for artillery piece, tank, mm -hmm. airplane. These were words foreign to that language. So they decided, okay, uh, a friendly airplane is going to be a dove. An enemy airplane will be a hawk. A tank will be a turtle. An artillery piece will be a log that fires, that launches fire. And a machine gun will be a stick that launches many fires. Okay. So they came up with these, these terms that they all agreed on so they could talk about them on the telephone. And, of course, this was, this was great. Uh, the commander could tell uh, his radio telephone communications guy, send a company this message. They got it. He would just turn around to his commander and say, okay, we've been ordered to move to Hill 508. Mm -hmm. That quick. Germans could never break that code. They just couldn't do it because it wasn't a code. Mm -hmm. It was a language with all the nuances that a language has, okay. and they never did break it. Come World War II... Uh, somebody in the Marine Corps remembered that, and they said, you know, let's not just ask the guys to do this for us. Let's, let's institutionalize this. Let's create a school. Let's get it organized. 
put it together and make it work. And those are the code talkers from World War II. So their lineage dates back to the Cherokee Indians of the First World War. Okay. So um, we talked a good amount about the 45th, the Thunderbird patch. Um, and I kind of keep going back to World War One. We just had this centennial of the end of the mm -hmm. war. Um, I know with the Oklahoma Guard, before the 45th, um, there was the combination with the Texas Guard for World War One, um, And I don't know how much area you know in that, but... Um, if I remember correctly, the patch for their division, it's an arrowhead with a T on it. Yeah, what happened is uh, when everybody starts getting mobilized for the First World War, um, they uh, sent the 1st Oklahoma Infantry Regiment and the Oklahoma's 111th Engineers down to Camp Bowie, Texas. Mm -hmm. And they formed the nucleus of what became the 36th Infantry Division. Now, throughout... World War One, the United States Army wore no shoulder sleeve insignia. Shoulder sleeve insignia started coming uh, about in the Army uh, at the very, very tail end. And a lot of units designed their patches on the boat on the way back. So there wasn't something that was um, predominant mm -hmm. among the... Uh, uh, the, the United States Army in, in 1918. It was another organization, the 90th Division. Their pitch, uh, patch had a, a T mm. and an O. That was Texas, Oklahoma. And because of those two letters on their patch, uh, the members of that organization referred to themselves as the Tough Hombres. With the, the 36th Division patch that we were talking about, with the, the arrowhead and the, the T, so it kind of sounds like Oklahoma and its Native American influence isn't just here anymore, it's, it's other places as well. Well, throughout the entire American West, um, you know, the Native American influence is, is predominant. Um, and I mean, it depends on how far you want to go back in history. But yeah, um, it's, it's not just Oklahoma. Uh, there's a, a great, you know, to this day, a great deal of Native American influence in Texas, in Arizona, in New Mexico, in Colorado, in uh, Missouri, in Kansas. I mean, this, this, was, uh, this was where the Plains Indians uh, made their home. And uh, their, their footprint and their legacy here is profound. Okay. So moving past, um, through World War II rather, not past, through World War II, we have a lot of Native Americans who serve. Um, we have Ernest Childers, Treadwell, um, and Montgomery all earn medal, or they receive medals of honor. What kind of is the division, what does it look like as we go through World War II into like the Korea time frame, like with, with Native American history? Okay, again, the, uh, with, with the Second World War behind us, um, the... Uh, the guard suffers, uh, as, as just about all guards in the, in the United States did after World War II, it's really hard to get people to join the National Guard because the veterans, they've done their time, they've worn the uniform, they figure they don't need to be in the Guard. But that began to change after a couple of years, and uh, membership in the Guard started coming up. Um, and it was only five short years after the end of uh, World War II uh, that the Korean War started. And when the call went out, the, the, uh, the citizens of the state of Oklahoma did not hesitate. The ranks of the Guard filled up very quickly. And of course, a lot of Native Americans in Oklahoma, and uh, they, they filled up the ranks as well. Um, we had a Medal of Honor recipient, 
uh, from the 45th Division in Korea, um, and uh, he uh, threw himself on a hand grenade. The kind of fellow this guy was, and um, Charles George, and he uh, he received the Medal of Honor of the 45th Infantry Division. Now he was not an Oklahoman, but he was an Eastern Cherokee. So we talked about Korea with PFC George, um, his Medal of Honor, he's Eastern Cherokee. Um, as we go through kind of the Oklahoma history and the Oklahoma Guard history, what happens after Korea and still kind of keeping that Native American history in mind? How do things go forward from there? Well, uh, after Korea, um, there, there is the threat that the communists are going to do some, somewhere else. And, um, and sure enough, of course, they did. Uh, Vietnam was already starting by the end of the Korean War. Uh, and again, after the Korean War's over, uh, it's difficult to fill up the ranks of the National Guard, not just in Oklahoma, but in every nation, every state. Um, but uh, the, those, those guys that were members of the division, there was a large population of Native Americans in the division, and they trained with the regular soldiers and, and, and climbed up the ranks, uh, just like in every state. Um, the, uh, the Vietnam War saw a lot of guys join the National Guard. Um, a lot of people will say that they did that to avoid being drafted, but you, there is no guarantee that the unit you belong to isn't going to be drafted or mobilized and sent to where combat is. Um, so that doesn't hail a whole lot of sway with me. But um, the, the 45th, Oklahoma's 45th did receive a warning order in 1968 or 67, I think it was, stand by for, for movement to Southeast Asia. Uh, start getting your house in order. And so they did. Uh, however, a few months later, uh, they were told to stand down from that order. And then in 1968, of course, the division itself was deactivated. And uh, then there was a major reorganization and Oklahoma was left with what was initially called the 45th Infantry Brigade mm. and the 45th Field Artillery Brigade, and then a number of, of uh, non-brigade uh, combat uh, support, combat service support uh, outfits, not dissimilar to what we have today with the 45th Infantry Brigade Combat Team. Mm -hmm. So that the Thunderbird is still worn by the Infantry Brigade Combat Team. Yes. Um, there's still a Thunderbird on the 45th Field Artillery Brigade's patch. Right. Um, it is a lineage that is going to perpetually stay with the Oklahoma National Guard. I cannot ever perceive a, a situation wherein which the Oklahoma National Guard is not wearing that Thunderbird. Um, it is, it's ingrained in, into the hearts and minds of Oklahomans. And for the, for the United States Armed Forces, uh, it is a symbol with a tremendous amount of, of, of history attached to it. Um, it is really, it's the words of, of George Patton after the division's first combat action in Sicily. Uh, he stood under a tree and addressed a large portion of the division. Um, and in, that, in his speech, he said, and I quote, Born at sea, baptized in blood, your fame shall never die. The 45th Infantry Division is one of the best, if not the best division in the history of American arms, end quote. And that is very high praise from a man who most definitely knew his history. 
Yeah, that definitely gets my Thunderbird heart going. Um, <laughs> I'm ready to get out and go. Um, while we're talking about quotes like that and like the heritage and the, the history of the 45th, do you remember the quote? Um, it's the, I cannot remember his name, I think it's Myers, the final commanding general of the 45th during World War II, his farewell address, the, the dipped in the blood of the Thunderbirds quote. Do you remember that? Uh, that was, um, it's a little bit more wordy. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, I'm trying to think, I don't think it was Myers, it was General uh, Frederick, I think. And I know the quote you're talking about, but I don't mm, have it. Okay. Um, so we'll just kind of move on. We talked about Vietnam. Um, and we, we kind of have the more modern guard through the 90s and then into the 2000s with global war on terror. Our Thunderbirds are still deploying overseas. Um, do you think they're still connecting that Native American heritage that kind of runs through oh, the absolutely. division? And absolutely. The division is still wearing the Thunderbird, as we were just discussing. Um, and uh, there are still... Uh, a large number, uh, and I think it's a, a number of Native Americans that are in the Guard that is disproportionate to the total population of, of Native Americans in the state. So uh, uh, they, they belly up to the bar. They don't mess around. Uh, very, very proud warriors. Uh, that is a tradition that is ingrained in them. Um, and so they, they're ready to, to help defend their land. I mean, it's their land before it was our land, right? And they, they still stand ready to defend that land and defend their, uh, their heritage. Um, I have been fortunate in my position here and with my position with the Oklahoma Military Heritage Foundation uh, to meet a lot of, of, of soldiers uh, from the past, um, many of them Native Americans. Um, and I am always impressed uh, with these individuals and their warrior spirit. So you know, the, this is the, the, the war in, in the Middle East uh, is the longest war this nation has ever been involved in. Uh, the Oklahoma Guard has seen its share of mobilizations to that theater of operations. Uh, Oklahomans have shed uh, a significant amount of their blood on that battlefield. Um, among the, the red stains in the sand out there is quite a bit of Native American blood. So, We're talking the history, and this is the museum. What kind of things does the museum have or do that kind of highlights that Native history, that Native American history? Well, just about everything, really, uh, because the 45th Division, the Oklahoma National Guard, uh, is itself part of the Native American history of those Native Americans who reside in Oklahoma. And if you want to go back to the pre-World War II and early World War II days, those who reside in the, in the other three states that made up the region of the division, our history is their history now. You cannot sit down and discuss, uh, say, uh, Cherokee history without them talking about uh, those members of their tribe that served in the 45th Division in World War II, Korea, uh, desert Storm uh, and the global, uh, the global War on Terror. So we're a part of them. What actual artifacts do we have here? We have the medal, Medals of Honors um, to represent the, the three uh, Native American sons who, who were serving with the 45th Division. Um, we have m their medals. We have uh, a headdress that was worn by 
um, Jack Montgomery, given to him by the, one of the tribal leaders of his tribe. Um, so there are a number of artifacts here that represent their, their heritage, all of them, in my opinion. Okay. So um, I saw out front, I believe it was a, a monument to Shalako veterans. Yes, the Shalako veterans came in. As a matter of fact, that is the, the very first stone monument to go up on our grounds. Um, veterans of the Shalako School uh, came here and put up that monument dedicated uh, to all of the members, uh, our graduates of Shalako School. I guess many of them actually were in the guard and, and, and had to go overseas before they actually graduated, uh, but who, who uh, paid the ultimate sacrifice mm-hmm. uh, for our country in World War I, World War II, and K- Korea and Vietnam. And that's where it stops because that's where we were at the time the monument went up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have any doubt that um, other members of Shalako School um, so for those got into who, some of those early conflicts for, in the Middle East. For those who aren't really familiar with what Shalako is, I know here in Oklahoma, a lot of people who may know, but what is, what is the Shalako School? Shalako was a, a, an Indian school, as it was called in those days. And um, it, was, it was one of those uh, boarding schools was the, the kids went there, and that's where they lived during the school year, and, uh, and they were taught. And, of course, originally the idea was uh, we're our, we are going to teach you uh, the white man's way, and we're going to teach that, that Native American out of you. You're going to learn to speak English exclusively, and you're going to learn uh, the history of the white man in the United mm-hmm. States. Uh, that changed over the years. I was gonna say, it sounds like that really definitely changed and needed to change because we talked earlier about the co talkers using their language. Oh, yeah. So their culture, their language. Well, you know, in, it, in the, World War the, II, however, the, um, th- those Native Americans that, that were still speaking the language mm-hmm. did so because the tribes instilled uh, their, their history and their language into their young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, the, if the tribal members had not done that, those guys would have grown up not knowing much of their own history and not speaking their own language. Um, Ultimately, though, uh, these Indian schools uh, did encourage uh, young people to to live their their ancestral heritage, which is a very good thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, and with Shalako, it's my understanding, I've kind of like heard and through some other stuff I've done, they, they actually had a military service commitment. Like they had a National Guard company on their grounds? Yes, yes. Um, it was set up initially kind of like ROTC is set up. You know, you'd go through the, the early program, and then if you wanted to continue on with it, well, you had to sign a letter of commitment. Mm-hmm. And you wound up serving uh, in the Oklahoma National Guard. Okay. Um, so how, like... Where did they go? Like, what units would they serve well, with? Well, mostly the, the C companies of almost every regiment. Uh, C Company 179 uh, was almost entirely, I say almost, entirely made up of Native Americans. You can go look at some of the photographs we've got on the walls back there, and uh, you can see that those guys are all Native Americans. Okay. Matter of fact, Charlie Company 179, if I'm not mistaken, when they went to Korea, um, they had a little rubber doll um, called Injun Joe. And he was a stereotypical little toy Indian holding a tomahawk in one hand. And when you initially got him, there was a little hole in the back of his headdress where you could stick an actual feather. 
and these guys took him and attached him to the top of their company guidon. Okay. And uh, everybody in the chain of command turned a blind eye to it. They said, yeah, okay, go with that. Um, somebody somewhere along the line, though, probably, well, undoubtedly after mobilization, complained about that. And so letters were exchanged, and ultimately what happened is that um, C Company got authorization from the Department of War at the time uh, to, to keep that uh, Engine Joe on the top of their, their guide on staff. And we're happy to be in possession of the original Willie, the original Engine Joe here at the museum today. Okay. Um, and you mentioned earlier, um, before we kind of started talking all this stuff, that there's a, an alcove, an area that is dedicated to Native Americans in the Oklahoma Guard, or what is that? Well, right across from the gift shop in the eastern hallway, we have what we call Native American alcove. And um, it is, it's a, a, a section of the museum we've set aside to honor the Native American participation in the Oklahoma Guard. Uh, here you'll see uh, original paintings by Brummett Echo Hawk, uh, and 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 uh, uh, Kelly Haney uh, depicting Native American warriors, and it's a uh, it has it has been a, a focal point uh, for Native American members of the Guard since I've been here at the museum. Okay, is there any plans to kind of expand anything, change? Like we always have plans to expand. Um, uh, personally, I, I see us having a, a museum here on this site, uh, the size of Crossroads Mall. But uh, I don't think anybody's paying me any attention. Um, we, uh, we're constantly planning, uh, along with uh, uh, our counterparts over at the Oklahoma uh, Military Department, uh, to expand the, the footprint of the building on this site. Um, it takes a lot of money to do that. And uh, the plans are in the work uh, for perhaps a bond issue. Um, we'll see what happens. So if people wanted to come see some of these things, how would they do, go about doing that? Like, where are we at? Because not everybody knows. Yeah. yeah. As a matter of fact, we're kind of the best kept secret in, uh, in Oklahoma City. Uh, we are in what's called the uh, Adventure District of Oklahoma City in the northeast quadrant of, uh, of the city. Uh, the address is 2145 Northeast 36th Street. We're right across from the Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, we're less than a mile uh, west of uh, I-35 on the nor Northeast 36th Street exit. Uh, we are just uh, about two miles south of Remington Park. So is there a charge to come here? The museum is absolutely free. We do accept donations at the door. Okay. Um, is there any kind of other nuggets you think I may have missed while we're talking or something that's come up like, hey, I think this is a really great thing I'd like to share with everyone? Is there anything? Well, the, the one thing that surprises most Oklahomans uh, or everybody else who comes through the museum is to learn that, that there were 26 battles of the American Civil War that took place right here in Oklahoma. And mostly uh, those were um, pro-Southern Indians against pro-Northern Indians. Um, and the last regularly commissioned Confederate general officer to lay down his arms was Brigadier General Stan Wadey, who laid down his arms near Fort Townsend, Oklahoma. He was a Native American. Uh, this, of course, means that the American Civil War ended in the state of Oklahoma. So, from a historical perspective, or even your own personal opinion, why is it important to honor Native Americans and recognize their service amongst everybody's 
service in the Oklahoma National Guard? Native Americans are unique to our population. Um, understand, when we went to war with Spain in 1899, there were a lot of Native Americans in the Army. Many of them were from tribes where their people were considered prisoners of war because of the Indian Wars that had just barely ended. Um, so they, they're kind of a unique population in the United States. Um, they once had their own nations here. Now they've melded into our population, but they retain that heritage. And as long as uh, they are going to uh, stand up and help us defend the United States of America, they deserve special recognition. So um, last year, the centennial of World War I, um, I had the opportunity to go to France and, and mm. walk around a lot of um, the cemeteries and things like that, and they had a big uh, display that was honoring Joseph Oklahombe, who was part of the 36th during that time. Uh, I know that there have been talks and, and things like that of getting him the Congressional Medal of Honor. Uh, he's been awarded the highest honor from the French military, from the French government. Uh, in the U.S., I believe he was awarded the Silver Star. Um, do you know anything about that, or can you speak on um, his All I know is that there, there is a big push, um, and there are a lot of people behind that. Um, it, it is an effort that is doable. It can be done and has been done. It is just a very, very onerous procedure. Um, the, the Medal of Honor is, is, is not issued out lightly. Uh, not to say that any other award is issued out lightly. Um, but there are a number of hurdles, uh, even at the time. Um, if, if a soldier today goes out and is involved in an act that his commanders believe warrants the Medal of Honor, it may be two or three years before he gets it because of the procedure. Uh, and of course, in the instance of guys who uh, they're pushing to get medals for them from acts that happened 100 years ago, it can be an owner's procedure. But my understanding is, is that the, the people behind the effort uh, are determined. So as long as they stick with it, I think they stand a pretty good chance. And I know during that time, Native Americans were not citizens of, or considered citizens of the United States. Uh, so the natives that went to World War I, that, that volunteered for World War I, they weren't citizens. They were just seeing that it was important for them to go and defend the land that they live on without being a citizen, without being drafted, like everybody else around them was. Do you think that the fact that he wasn't considered a citizen may have something to do with that Medal of Honor? No, I don't think so. Um, I forget what year it was, but um, I'm going to use this terminology, and I'm not sure it's absolutely positive. But citizenship was kind of made retroactive. So it would not be a determining factor. Um, he was a member of the United States Armed Forces. And that is, and that, and the and the fact that he was involved in an act worthy, you know, above and beyond the call of duty, that's that's the only requirements. So citizenship wasn't. 
No, it, it, it wasn't ever a factor except in the minds of some people. Um, this is why we saw uh, just a few years ago where there was an effort to go back and review, and this is still an ongoing process, review people's records that were from minorities mm-hmm. and see if they didn't deserve the, the Medal of Honor upgraded from, say, the DSC. Uh, 45th Division has, has uh, uh, two such members who uh, were retroactively uh, awarded the Medal of Honor. Is that just based on back in the day that didn't... Yeah, it was a lot of prejudice. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's a sad fact of history, but that's the way things were. Uh, fortunately, now, uh, with some degree of enlightenment, uh, we're going back and, and correcting those errors. It's sad that many of those guys um, have since passed away and, and, and can't benefit from, from that award. Uh, but there uh, are, are many uh, Vietnam-era guys uh, who were put in for the medal and didn't get it, and then you know, they're still with us when it was upgraded. And you know, f- for me, that's, uh, you know, that's something that y- you just want to celebrate. And they're still here, and you can see the President of the United States hang the medal around their necks. Um, you know, long since overdue. But. Yeah. Um, for a more recent Native American and a female, uh, can we talk about, I, I cannot remember her name, but she was the black, she became the Black Hawk pilot. What, yeah. Oklahoma Guard? Yeah. She's Vicki the, Jones? Yes, Vicki Jones. Yeah, Vicki Jones. Can you talk a little bit, uh, highlight her a little bit, because breaking a lot of barriers, especially in her time in the Guard, as both a Native American and a female, and becoming a pilot. Um, can you chat a little bit? I had the opportunity to sit down and have a discussion with, with Vicki Jones, and uh, I found her to be a, an exceptional human being. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, dedicated and, and uh, filled with a spirit of elan. She uh, strikes me as the kind of person that just isn't going to take no for an answer, and I think that's probably what she's been out throughout her life, which accounts for the fact that she was the, the first uh, female Native American to achieve the things she did. Um, she gets in the guard, she becomes uh, Oklahoma's first, um, not just the first pilot, uh, helicopter pilot, but she saw combat mm-hmm. uh, with the outfit. And um, yeah, after having spoken with her, I'm not surprised at all. She's just, she's really something else. Uh, and. On the one hand, you're very impressed with her when you meet her, and at the same time, you realize that this is what it took for her to become a combat helicopter pilot. Um, She couldn't just walk in the door, pass the tests like anybody else, wind up flying a helicopter. Mm -hmm. She had to be that exceptional person. So she was, she got there, and she broke down the barriers. So today... Uh, Native American female, black female, uh, with the drive to become a helicopter pilot and the courage to take that helicopter into combat can do it. And they have her to thank for it. So being a trailblazer is like an important thing. It's key for these areas, right? Oh, yeah. Being a a trailblazer in in any walk of life, absolutely, for for whatever reason. Um, Barriers have to be broken down. 
and frontiers have to be crossed. Mm -hmm. And to my mind, and I think the mind of most Americans today, it doesn't make any difference what your, what your heritage is. It doesn't make any difference what the color of your skin is or what your last name is. If you're the person uh, to, with, the, with the drive, the determination, and the courage to fly all the way to Mars and be the per first person to set foot in that red sand, go for it. So I, you mentioned before that as far as um, recruitment and enlistment of Native Americans in the Oklahoma Guard is kind of disproportionate to the total population in Oklahoma. Yeah, in many cases throughout history. Um, Why do you think that is? Because in, in a Native American uh, uh, tribal communities, um, the spirit of the warrior is still a big thing. You know, the special warriors in the tribes, and, and this is a heritage that they maintain. And so when the call goes out f from the government or from the state, we need warriors, these guys are like, well, hey, that's me. You know, I come from a family of warriors. And they're the first ones to get in the, the line to, to sign up. So. so you may have noticed a little bit of static in the audio of this episode. Don't be spooked. Even though we recorded this episode three days before Halloween, that crackle you hear is just one of our friendly phantasms at the 45th Infantry Division Museum, where we recorded this episode of the OK Guard Show. Located at 2145 Northeast 36th Street in Oklahoma City, the 45th Infantry Division Museum takes visitors on a historical journey beginning in 1541 through the Oklahoma National Guard's participation in the Persian Gulf War. Housed in the former Lincoln Park Armory, built in 1937, the Oklahoma Red Dirt Bricked Building houses a 27,000-square-foot gallery of militaria relative to the military history of the state of Oklahoma, including the nation's third-largest collection of historic military firearms, the world's largest collection of items once owned by Adolf Hitler, and more than 200 World War II cartoons illustrated between 1944 and 1945 by 45th Infantry Division soldier Bill Malden. You can also view various tanks, aircraft, troop carriers, and artillery cannons on the 15-acre grounds surrounding the museum. The museum, which is staffed by volunteer veterans, is open Tuesday through Friday and closed on Mondays. Admission is free. So stop by and explore Oklahoma's bygone military history of yesteryear today. Can you tell us about these two gentlemen? Well, certainly these are uh, two paintings by Brummett Echo Hawk of uh, two of our Medal of Honor recipients painted from life. Uh, this one here, this is Jack Montgomery's Cherokee Indian. Um, in, in the foreground, of course, is, uh, is Jack in his World War II uniform with his Medal of Honor around his neck. And in the background, you can see a depiction of the action for which he received that award. Um, the, uh, he had gone forward with a patrol. He put them behind a, a stone fence, and it was just about dawn. It was very, very foggy. They really couldn't see what was in front of them. He was hesitant to take his patrol down there, so he went by himself, uh, hoping to be a bit more uh, stealthy than a whole group of guys walking down the road. And uh, he encountered uh, quite a few Germans in a little house, which is depicted by this area up here. Okay. Um, he killed most of them, captured the rest, uh, took out machine gun nest. Uh, for this action, he received his Medal of Honor. 
Is this, you said this is Ernest Childers? Yeah, this is Ernest Childers. He was with the 180th. Um, uh, he and Brum Echohawk, who, who's the artist, were, were pretty good friends. Uh, the top portion is uh, Anzio. You can see the guys coming ashore. Uh, and in the background, you can see the, the naval flotilla that, and you can see the landing craft coming ashore mm -hmm. and the, the guys taking the beach. Uh, behind Ernest is a depiction of the action for which he received his medal. Again, they were on a patrol. Uh, they came to a town, which is down here by the viaduct. And as they were entering the town, they came under machine gun fire. He dives into a shell crater and breaks his ankle. Ow. Um, so now his, his, his soldiers managed to force the Germans to take their machine gun and relocate. And now they're trying to get back to their own lines. Uh, and they're trying to help uh, Ernest along. And they get to a point, and on the top of this ridge, mm -hmm. there are three German machine gun nests. And they are laying down uh, a heavy uh, fire on the rest, of the, uh, uh, the rest of the battalion down in the valley. So what Ernest did is he had his men stay behind, and then he crawled along this ledge, and he, he killed all three of the, uh, the, the Germans that were manning the machine guns, all three machine gun nests. The last one, uh, he told me himself, he says, he, he takes a bead, and he can just barely see the tops of these helmets, uh, these two Germans manning the machine gun nest. Uh, not enough to mm -hmm. play a, uh, accurate fire on them, so he just picked up a rock and he threw it and it landed in their hole and one of them hollered grenade and they both jumped out. When he did, he nailed them both. It's using your noodle. Moving a little on further down the line, he comes to a, a low wall and here's a, a German on a field phone directing mortar fire on the Americans below. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's, he's kneeling down by this wall and behind him, he's laid his rifle up against the wall. Mm -hmm. And Jack uh, uh, took a Ernest took aim, and he squeezed the trigger, and he was out of ammunition. So he hollered at the German, Hin the hole! And the German turned around, realized that he wasn't going to be able to get to his gun before this American could kill him, so he surrendered, mm -hmm. not knowing Jack was out <laughs> of ammo. <laughs> and our Ernest was out of ammo, and so he, uh, he took him prisoner. And for this action... Uh, he received his Medal of Honor. Um, he was moved, it was weeks later before he got mm -hmm. the word uh, to come to, uh, to, he was pulled back. These MPs show up on the front line trace, they put him in the Jeep, and he's like, what, what's going on? And they said, you know what's going on? You don't know why you're, we're picking you up? No. They drive him back to uh, Naples, mm -hmm. and they take him into the sports arena. And they tell him, down there, showers, there's a nice clean uniform. What's going on? Get showered, get changed, and run out of time. So he gets showered, he gets changed, he goes back, the MPs are standing there on either side of him, and he's like, okay, what, what's happening? And they said, you don't know. No. Let's go. Music starts playing, he walks out on the field, here's uh, a contingent of American soldiers and British soldiers. There's a big reviewing stand. There's all these flags waving. And there's the Corps commander standing up there. Mm -hmm. He thought, well, I don't know what I've done, but I guess I'm going to jail. They're going to behead me. Something. And he gets up there, and 
this guy's attention to orders, and General Devers puts the Medal of Honor around his neck, and he's as floored as anybody can possibly be. Wow. So yeah, in the in the painting, these guys definitely look scared, and I think I'd be scared too here in that story. Like that 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 sounds absolutely terrifying. And I can see on his on his regimental or on his infantry rifles, he does have 180th on yeah. there. So we we have another Medal of Honor from the 180th, and I feel like I would be. I got to give a shout out because I'm the infantry brigade. I'm at the infantry brigade. I got to give a shout out to the 180th because they are always telling us they have the most Medal of Honor recipients. Yeah, I think that's they, true. they they don't let it they don't let it go they don't away. Let it go away. I also want to point out these two paintings were, were done by Brummett Echohawk. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brummett was an incredible individual. I had the privilege to know him uh, until his death. Uh, he and he was a, a combat veteran of World War II. Um, incredible story about him. He uh, he and three other guys from his tribe, all members of the Warrior Clan, mm-hmm. are in the guard. They know they're getting ready to go overseas to fight a war. They went to a a tribal shaman, and they said, uh, you know, what's going to happen to us in the war? And the shaman said, of the four of you, one will be killed. The rest of you are coming back. Exiting the landing craft, their first combat action on the island of Sicily, one of the guys is shot and killed. The other other guys think, well, now we got a ticket to ride, right? Okay. She said you'd come back. She didn't say you'd come back in one piece. Okay. So uh, it's all about the well, details. Ernest was, uh, <laughs> he was a crazy man. He, he, standing right here, he told me these stories about his combat action uh, in, in Germany, or in Italy, in France. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm standing here thinking, this old guy's stretching the blanket just a little bit. And then later, during a reunion, um, I met guys that served with him, and I said, you know, Brummett told me, and he said, yeah, that's absolutely true. I was there. I saw him do that. It's crazy. He's a crazy man. <laughs> they were on a patrol. They're coming back from this patrol. You understand, he threw out, because he's Native American, he carries this immense Bowie knife on his belt. Mm-hmm. And they, they're coming back from this patrol. They've got all their equipment. They're very tired. They take a break, and they lean against this low stone wall. Well, on the other side of the wall, they hear some guys walking up. Another patrol, they're a little confused. Then it dawns them they're speaking German. Okay. So everybody's just like froze. They don't know what to do until Brummett jumps up, brandishing this knife, screaming like a banshee, jumps over the wall. So all of his, his buddies in the patrol, they come up over the wall too. The Germans are shocked. And, of course, here's this red Indian with this huge Bowie knife, and these guys scatter. Well, Brummett takes off after this German who's carrying MG-42 machine Mm. gun over his shoulder. And this guy's running down the hill, and he looks over his shoulder. Brummett's catching up with him. He throws the machine gun down, and now he's barreling for it. Well, he doesn't make it. (laughs) And scatter this entire patrol. Most of the rest of the guys' patrol took care of the Germans. Um, whether or not any of them got back to the lines, I don't know. But, you know, Brummett comes back up, and just, that's just one of the many stories he told me. About. Mm-hmm. At Anzio, he talked about he saw this tank. They were in the Mussolini Canal, this tank. The German tank was parked over there. It was, the gun was panning back and forth. He needed to get to a house on the other side of this field where these Germans had set up machine guns. And uh, he timed 
the movement of the barrel, and when it got where it was just about pointing at him, he jumps up and starts running for this house. Well, Germans, they're cranking this barrel over, and they're firing their machine gun, and the bullets are hitting right behind him. He gets in this house, knocked out three machine guns inside the house, set the house on fire, hand-to-hand -hand combat with another German as he's getting out. Then he's got to run that gauntlet with that German tank to get back into the Mussolini Canal. I'm thinking, that's just a little far-fetched until I met the... Oh, no, I was laying right there. I saw him do it. I figured he didn't have a chance in heck to get back from that. He did it. Yeah, yeah, he was, uh, he was crazy. He was that wild. really is a different, different generation. Oh, my like gosh, that. yes. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into this month's episode of the OK Guard Show. So I was thinking, Brian... You know yeah. what I'm worried about next month? Uh, being on the naughty list. Well, again, it's every year. I'm no longer yeah, afraid of it because I know it's coming. But I know. However, finances. Holiday yeah. season's expensive. It's very expensive. Yeah. You know, you have a brand new, very large family yeah. that you have to worry about not getting yourself in debt buying gifts for. Yeah, because I want them to be happy and buy yeah. their love, but I also want pay my bills and eat food. I mean, both of those are very important things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I recently just bought a house, so knowing what to do with those heavy expenses at the end of the year mm. would be really nice to know too. Who can yeah. we get to come in? Shay. Shay. Shay Cockrell. Yeah. He's a CPA. He came on our finance episode. He did. For budgeting. Yep. So because the holiday is so expensive, um, travel, gifts. Food. Food. Uh, all that stuff. Uh, it'll be a great one to bring on and talk about that and how we can kind of work through that yeah, and not so. put ourselves in a hole. I don't I like want to be in a hole. No, you don't want to start the year out digging yourself out of a hole yeah. that you just got in a couple weeks before. Yeah, just because of, you know, presents and yeah. stuff like that. So, yeah. yeah. So tune in next month. We're going to do it a little bit earlier than we normally do just mm -hmm. so everybody can get these great little bits of information yeah. before you break the bank. Hopefully you don't break the bank or into the bank to pay for holidays. Yeah, yeah don't do that, that is illegal. Yeah, we yes. have, we had to look it up, but it is in fact illegal to break into right. a bank. Right. So earn it honestly, guys, come on. Right, don't end up on the naughty list. Yeah, so um, that's not the reason, I'll say. Anyway, <laughs> all right, well, we'll see you here in a couple weeks then. Yeah, all right. yeah, have cool. a good November. All right. The OK Guard Show is produced by the Oklahoma National Guard Public Affairs Office. Any mention of products or brands does not imply endorsement. All guests on the show are volunteers in an effort to inform and educate members of the Oklahoma National Guard, their families, retirees, potential recruits, and the community.